Strategic Healthcare Partners, founded by principals John Crew and Mike Scribner, operates from offices in Savannah and Atlanta. Our diverse team prioritizes clients, ensuring we fully understand their needs. As your business partner, we are an extension of your professional identity. SHP tailors services to your individual needs, offering flexible pricing structures. From IPA management to financial analysis, we're here to empower your organization. Visit shpllc.com for details. Welcome to Beyond the Stethoscope, Vital Conversations with SHP. We're kicking off this season with a multi-part series on trends in value-based and outpatient care. On today's episode, join us as we dive into the world of value-based trends in primary care markets with guests Mike Scribner, John Crew, and Kelly Mooney. They share their expertise and discuss how independent PCPs will be impacted by these trends in healthcare. They will highlight both commercial and Medicare arrangements in the marketplace, how practices are impacted by such well as how best to thrive and incorporate to an overall managed care strategy. So sit back, relax, and join us as we navigate the ever-evolving landscape of primary care and uncover the future of healthcare delivery on Beyond the Stethoscope. So as an opening question, you guys, let's talk about what trends in value-based care you've seen. Kind of start high level and kind of tell me what what value-based trends you see are out there and what opportunities you think that uh, primary care in particular may be encountering? Well, I'll jump in. This is John Crew. I, I think, uh, and Kelly can certainly add to this, I think when you think about trends, I think you you, you really talk about the sort of the evolution of, of value-based care in general in other states. Historically speaking, when we have value-based care they tend to gravitate into the larger metropolitan areas because it's all about attribution. Everything's about attribution. So they're looking at what's my fastest way to get a significant number of patients. And so if you can go into an Atlanta or an Augusta or a Savannah where you can pick up 20,000 attributed lives with four or five groups, that sort of becomes your target market and so the consequence of that is, is that particularly rural providers who don't have that kind of volume, they tend to get left out. It's not just that they're left out, they're just those opportunities don't exist for them. And so what we do here at SHP is we're trying our best to figure out how to incorporate those practices and give them opportunities that otherwise they wouldn't have. And part of that is by being able to coalesce them together where their combined attribution becomes the same meaningful attribution as a couple of large practices in the metropolitan areas. And I think that uh, there aren't a lot of people out there doing that. And I think that's what makes us a little bit unique at SHP. Have you thought about how to coalesce and work collectively with, with the rural providers? Part of that build is going to take place because there's going to be a bit of a blueprint that's going to come from Medicaid. As Medicaid moves into value-based care, they're going to have to bring value-based care into the rural markets. So we may have part of that blueprint moving forward that, that we'll be able to go back and share with the other payers in the marketplace. 
describe to us the the types of models that have evolved in the market from a Medicare Advantage perspective have kind of come first, but I, I guess commercial came first and now Medicare Advantage is kind of coming to coming into the market. Give us some description of the most prevalent two or three, four models that are out there. Um, so the most common model, I would say, that has the largest footprint from a Medicare Advantage standpoint is going to be Humana's model practice engagement. Uh, the key component of that continues to be quality driven. Primary care practices, probably very familiar with HEDIS quality metrics, um, A1Cs that are being done. Um, are you closing your care gaps for screenings for colonoscopy, breast cancer screenings, all of those different studies? And uh, tying quality and financial incentives to meeting those metrics for your population, keeping them out of the emergency room. Uh, the other component that we've seen tie in more to that is upside shared savings models. Now, the challenge on that side has been, particularly in rural areas, um, to John's point, aggregating enough of a footprint to move any financial metrics continues to be a challenge. Um, and with smaller populations of providers within communities, it becomes more difficult to redirect care in those settings. I guess, Medicare aside, what's the most prevalent commercial model out there and how does it differ? Uh, the only real model that's out there today is Anthem's enhanced personal health care model. Um, and it is tied to, uh, again, an attribution model based on who is delivering the most primary care to a particular patient. Uh, similar uh, HEDIS metrics, keeping people out of the emergency room, doing your transitional care management, um, monitoring medications for your patients. And there's also a financial component that has been even more challenging to hit than the Medicare Advantage side has been. Before we start talking about sort of operational issues with, with being successful in those programs, which is, which is where I want to head, how does a typical primary care practice get involved in one of those programs in the first place? How, how are they accessed in the first place? they're recruited. I mean, if, if you really go back to the inception of, of value base, it really was the original MSSP plans. And so everybody recruited primary care into that. And unfortunately, because CMS's original model has evolved dramatically, which is the good part, unfortunately, because in the early stages, a lot of those MSSPs failed. Uh, and so uh, it was only after CMS sort of adjusted, and Kelly talked more to this, but it's only after they adjusted did physicians become to be successful. But at the end of the day, they were recruited. And I will go back again to repeat Kelly, they're, they're recruited based on their attribution. They're looking at originally, you know, in the MSSPs, they needed 5,000 lives. And over the course of time, they've discovered that the higher the attribution, the less risk there is for losing money. So now most people went to 10 and 15, and now really a top number is 20,000. That's sort of what people are looking for. And so even though, even though the red, white, and blue population is declining and there's more and more, more of it is going into the MA plans, and that's what's bringing more of the MA lives up, there's still opportunity within the, the traditional red, white, and blue. 
but it's but because they have to be recruited, I'm going to go back to what I said in the beginning. It's been to this point, it has been our organization, SHP, which has brought those lives up into partnering with ACOs, whether it be the red, white, and blue or the MAs. And we do have at least one red, white, blue ACO that, that we brought the vendor in and we put them together with the positions that has been incredibly successful. And then on the commercial side, I know Kelly mentioned that, uh, that the Blues DPHC program was the most prevalent and then Humanist program. I think they all have some model, but unfortunately, at least to this date on the commercial side, I don't know that they have been, at least with our client bases, they have been incredibly successful. Part of that is because I think, and I would really like to hear Kelly comment on this. I think part of that is the payers are being forced to implement standardized models that may be universal across state to state, and they're very claims-based driven versus clinically driven. And so I think that's had a bit of a negative impact. That's why the, the MSSP has been successful because you get real-time data or close to real-time data that's actionable. Kelly, you have any thoughts? Yeah, that's a great point, John. Uh, the challenge to accessible and actionable data is the biggest um, hurdle in any of the non-traditional Medicare models. Um, obviously, there's always a delay because claims filing is going to run behind for all healthcare providers, uh, but there's been a real difficulty for um all of the payer partners that we've worked with to provide data in a time frame with which providers can do anything with. And for commercial population, managing the cost um, becomes even more difficult because you're limited by what that health plan has negotiated in the market and their limitations to what you can do about their downstream contracts how material the financial returns can be. Is this worth the squeeze in terms of whatever operational changes we're going to talk about? It can vary. I, I, I think there's a risk reward. I, I think the reward that, that we're most familiar with has been what our clients have done. And we have clients that have done incredibly well in it financially. It, it has meant a significant amount to their practices. And that's through accumulation of an MSSP on the commercial side, the EPHC that Kelly spoke about, you know, their relationships with other payers, including Medicaid, all of those combined, they, they have been very successful. Um, I think they would tell you that as far as they've had some change in their, their practice flows within the practice, but for the most part, I think they would tell you that they are still practicing medicine the way they always practice medicine, I think what they would tell you that has been the real benefit to them is they understand coding better. They understand the coding to acuity better. They understand the impact of not doing that. I think they understand of, of closing gaps, of, of, of really managing your bottom 5%, which is driving about 80% of your costs. I think they would tell you that. But I don't think that, I think what they would also tell you is that the their imaginary thought of what that was going to be, the requirements as far as staffing changes, all of those things, um, I think they would tell you that it wasn't as severe as they thought it was going to be. But the real challenge in this too, Michael, is that I think we have to recognize that what I was saying earlier about these value-based models haven't been available in the, in the rural communities. 
And as these companies continue to come into Georgia, now you're getting some saturation out of Atlanta, a little bit of saturation out of the, the, the other MSAs. And so you're really getting down to the rural market becomes a little, can become a little bit of a target market, particularly say for a Blue Cross and their EPHC, things like this. But what is happening is everybody, there's two factors. One is everybody is pushing to go at risk because the risk is where the greatest reward is for the money. The more risk you take on the traditional red, white, and blue, the better the opportunities. If you take the full risk, you no longer have to split with CMS 50-50. You can split at 75-25. There are different models within there. So there's a big push to do risk. And then on the MA side, there's a big push to get to capitation. And these things in and of themselves can be a little frightening. But the fact is, these models have proven to be successful. But to go from doing nothing to capitation or from nothing to be at a financial risk is, I think, is, is has unintended consequences. And I think that's why for our clients, we have tried to work with them to match them with the right, right partners where they won't be at any kind of financial risk or harm to their practice. And value-based medicine is an opportunity to augment that revenue, but not to replace fee-for-service. And I, and I think you have to have that mindset. So again, keeping on kind of dropping us down another level, what are, and I guess I'll direct this at you, Kelly, what are the sort of two, three, four items that have driven practices to be successful in either an ACO model or the Medicare Advantage plans that are prevalent in the market? So I think the initial um, driver is position commitment to the model and um, situating their practice for success. Uh, part of that is working a care coordination function within their practices. John, anything to add? Yeah, I, I think that it it really is models that have been driven by the providers themselves as opposed to having someone come in and tell them what to do. I, I think the models have been successful. Their partners have provided data and resources. I think it's been on the physicians themselves to collaborate with each other and hold each other accountable. And, and really, I've been in some fascinating meetings with physicians, and I'm not a clinician, but I've been in some fascinating physicians where physicians are talking to each other about why you use one code versus another code and what that means and why you use a this modifier versus this modifier because this is what it means in terms of acuity or cost or all of these things. And I think the education that wasn't insurmountable, but it was an education. And I think once folks learned that, they really began to understand the importance of, of really making sure that, and I can't overstate this, to making sure that they were capturing the right acuity and doing the right coding. And those things in and of itself, and Kelly, you you comment on this, those things in and of itself are probably about 80% of the lift. So explain that a little further for the regular person in the audience here. Why is coding so important that it's tied to the financial return? How to connect those dots? For um, particularly traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage, the funding that goes into the financial model, what they're going to base um, your financial return off of is based on patient acuity. And that's captured through something we call risk adjustment. 
that are the diagnosis codes that are submitted on claims. Uh, those reset annually. So even for conditions that would never change, say one of the highest risk adjusted codes, if you're HIV or AIDS positive, that's going to drop off at the beginning of every year, even though in today's clinical world, that condition will never change. So making sure that you're capturing how sick and the actual acuity of your patients are every year means that the plan is appropriately funded for the care that that patient is expected to receive. And so that's the key component. Um, you can be much more impactful on the funding than managing downstream cost. You will never lose back dollars that you didn't capture by miscoding your patient because their costs are going to be the same. You just weren't funded for that care. And, and as a lay person, Michael, what that means to me is, is that if you don't capture those codes, you're still treating those codes, but you're only, tar you're only targeting for what you're treating for that time to CMS. That looks like that you're, that you're out of line with your, with your care that you're given the cost for your care, because while you're treating that and you would have been the whole, what, by not coding it and going back and picking up all of those things that follow. I always think of heart attacks, people have had heart attacks, but not keeping those things going. It looks like your patients are sicker when they're not, when they're in actuality, they're not. All right. So shifting down to, okay, I see the, I see the benefit. I see the sort of the key drivers that have driven success. Talk about the con for just a second. What, what operational concerns, practice throughput disruption have we seen Kelly, you and John, have y'all seen in practices that have gone in the deep end and adopted sort of a full model along these lines? Hardest thing is there are, there are people that get it, and then there are people that don't get it, that are willing to change. There are people that are willing to understand the importance of coding and, and, and why I need to code that way, and, and they're willing to adopt it and do it and move forward. And then unfortunately, there are providers in these groups they got in just to see if they got a check for no other reason. They're not committed. They're just, I want to get in just to see if I get a check. And so once your data starts coming out, it's going to tell you, I mean, it is absolutely going to tell you, these are the folks that are killing it and doing the right thing. And these are the folks that aren't. The first thing you're going to do is go to those that aren't, and you're going to try to bring them up to the level that the others that are. I mean, you're going to, there, you, it's going to be peer to peer conversations about, here are the things you need to do to be successful, because if you're not successful, you are negatively impacting me. You're, you're affecting my money. So the goal is to do that. And at the end of the day, if you have those that just absolutely never buy in, at the end of the day, the, the downside is they're going to kick them out. But at a throughput perspective, and I guess, Kelly, this one's to you too, what's the feedback that we've been on a practice's ability to not disrupt the regular throughput of patients. As John, as you alluded to before, we're a fee-for-service state, we're paid per click. Is our experience that implementing effective care coordination and, and VBC supportive activities in the practice, has it slowed down the practice? What are the sort of the disruptive things that a practice needs to be aware of as they go through this? I'm talking pretty low level operationally. Um, I don't think that we've seen that level of concern from the practices that have integrated value-based care models. Uh, the biggest 
uh, sort of disruption that we've seen is really on the lower level staff in the practice in terms of identifying and targeting in their own EMR, who's tied to what model, what care gaps they need to close. So that's where we've seen more of the operational work done. I will say, and Kelly can add to this, one of the things, Mike, that it's important when you're trying to identify the right partner, assuming you don't want to do this on your own, when you're tr trying to identify the right partner, I think the most critical conversation, this and this is indicative of whether it's Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, commercial, any other, it's really what resources is your partner putting out there? What are they, are they boots on the, and what we like to refer to as boots on the ground? Are they sending coders out? Are they getting people in the market out there with you to help close those care gaps? Are they making outbound calls to patients to get them in? Are they helping verify that, you know, if you're a diabetic, you're supposed to have a you're supposed to have an eye exam, and they're not being dependent on hoping the eye doctor sends notes back to the primary care. They're out there tracking that down. It's really what are they doing? Because remember now, most of these partners are getting, you know, the you know at least half of these savings. So the the tools that you need to be successful, that's the pot it needs to come out of. They need, a, they need to reinvest in the market. And the more successful they are as a, as a group, the more you want your partner reinvesting in the market and resources to help you achieve those success, as opposed to it all being solely dependent on your practice. John, kind of concluding point to kind of wrap this back up and get kind of back to the high level. What would our, our general recommendation be? I'm a five doctor primary care practice in Vidalia, Georgia, independent. I really haven't stuck my toe in the water of this at all. What do I do next? What do I do first? I, I think we, you know, for us, you know, if there are clients, we're, and, and this is something they want to do, that the thing we want to do is we want to try to identify the right partners. And we've got some working relationships. You want to identify some partners um, out there that you can collaborate with to bring them in at a zero risk to the practices. And so what a lot of ACOs have started doing is they have started building now multiple ACOs. And so what they'll do is they'll have one that they put everybody in and it's sort of the learning curve ACO. And it's where you learn how to interact, get data, give data and how successful you can be. And then if you're really successful, what they tend to do is they gravitate you up to an ACO that has been in existence and has made really good money. So they see you as a contributor that's going to enhance that one. And so they move you up into another ACO. And for the others, they continue to try to train and help and bring along, but at no risk. But it's really sort of like, the, you know, you, you sort of, it's sort of like getting value-based care 101, but you're at zero risk. You can't fail. You just may not can pass. And so the reality of it is, is that's that's sort of the models that we're trying to find out there and look for. Same thing on the MA side of it. We want to find partners that don't require you go directly to capitation. We want to find partners that are going to work with you, continue to work with you where there's upside dollars in this, build the same models. Having those tiered models is a key because when you've got a model that's incredibly successful, then it's your goal to try to get from the A tier to the B tier because the money's already in the B tier. You don't have to, it's already there. You're just going to add to that. So it's getting people that want to put those tiered models in 
to help them come through. And as you get into the upper models that are doing incredibly well, you do want to go to capitation. You absolutely want to take risks because you're going to kill it. You, 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 you've been doing it. You're going to continue to do it. But that learning curve, you don't want to be in any position to take any risk at all. Is that a fair statement, Kelly? It is, John. Okay. Well, thank you all for your time today. You've been listening to Beyond the Stethoscope, Vital Conversations with SHP, a production of Strategic Healthcare Partners. For more information about our podcast, including back episodes, show notes, transcripts, and more, visit our website at shpllc.com slash podcasts. And I know you've heard it before, but please consider rating our podcast in your favorite podcast app. It helps make others aware of the show. And our podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful team of folks. Editing and production assistance by Nyla Weeb and myself, Aaron Higgins. And your episode hosts are Aaron Higgins and myself, Jason Crosby. Our social media coordinator is Jeremy Miller. Our executive producers are also our principals, Mike Scribner and John Crew. For more from SHP, consider following us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And as always, thank you for listening and have a great, wonderful day. Analytics. Lacking the tandem of actionable reporting with expert analysis? Not confident in the knowledge of your reporting system? SHP's expert analysts transform data from your EMR system into actionable insights. Understand your facility's performance, control outcomes, and enhance patient experience. As payment models shift to value-based care, our guidance can improve your bottom line. Visit shpllc.com for details. 